welcome to the Nuclear Medicine and Molecular Medicine podcast, and we've got um, Dr. Rosenberg, who's who did an excellent talk, I thought, on um, inflammation marker um, that's particularly useful, uh, potentially at least, with uh, with multiple sclerosis. Um, perhaps you could start by telling us a little bit about your what do you do and where you work, and then tell us about your talk. Okay. Uh, so this work was all done at uh, Washington University in St. Louis uh, in the lab of Dr. Uh, Zudtu. Um, and when I entered the project, we were it was still in its preliminary stages, um, but we really wanted to target this one receptor associated with neural inflammation, and specifically it's associated with multiple sclerosis. And um, in multiple sclerosis, this receptor is upregulated, increased in the brain. And we just, we determined that if we got a radio tracer that targeted this specific receptor, we could use it for diagnostic purposes for multiple sclerosis lesions, and not um, all, all the kinds of lesions. Right. So how's it different from congophilic uh, receptors and things like this for for uh, for inflammation or multiple sclerosis? Um, so this this receptor it's it's involved in both for the inflammation and it's actually the receptor primarily targeted for therapeutic agents for multiple sclerosis. Um, and that it's, it's involved, again, it, both in the lesions and then in the, the lymphocytes or the, the molecules that cause the inflammation and cause the problems, um, at least theoretically, for the disease. And so we felt it would be good to just go directly f to the receptor as opposed to a downstream receptor. Right, right, right. And so, um, so you actually looked at a number of different uh, different products to do that, and some work better than others. Perhaps you could tell us a bit how right. that happened. So we um, we designed over fifty compounds uh, for this receptor, and then screened them in our in-house assay uh, that we we developed. And then once we got some compounds that were we felt potent potent enough, and we felt they would show uh, good properties in uh, in animals, we radio labeled them and looked at them in the animals. And then once we did that, we were able to determine which compounds worked very well and which compounds were not as well. Right. So, so the compounds, what did you use for the radio labeling? Uh, so all the compounds are fluorine 18 labeled. Yes. Um, and for all of them, we were able to get moderate to good radiochemical yields to produce these. So we were able to get enough of the compounds to do the studies. Right. And um, do you think uh, that you're going to be able to Upscale this in terms of in terms of um, in terms of getting enough product for humans. Um, well, we're already at that stage with our leading tracer. Uh, for our leading tracer, we can produce um, forty to sixty millicuries in a batch from two hundred millicuries of fluoride. Oh, okay. um, so, so that hurdle, I think, <laughs> that we've already cleared. Um, what we do need to look at, and we're starting to look at more now, is more non-human primate imaging. Right. Um, to look at all of the, the sort of the smaller but still important factors for the tracer right. before we can translate it to humans. Right, and obviously the kind of factors you need to look at for the with an MS tracer are things that are going to um, cross the blood-brain barrier. Right. Well, that was that was a significant hurdle on our tracers. Our first compound that we were we were really excited about, um, we radio labeled, um, showed really good activity in vitro in our assays, and we thought it'd be good, and it didn't cross the blood-brain barrier whatsoever. Right, right. Um, and then we were able to design around that for our later compounds. Okay. So, I mean, for things to cross the blood-brain barrier, they need to have uh, the it needs to have a dual characteristic, really, in order to do that. It needs to be one side lipophilic and one, one side right. not, right? And, and so that's what you did with all of these compounds, are they? Right. Um, well, one of the challenges for this receptor is that, based on the binding pocket, 
you need to have um, an amphiphilic compound. One side is very lipophilic and one side is very polar, Yes. which is great for binding the receptor and very poor for crossing the blood-brain barrier. Right, right. Um, because of the efflux transporters. Okay, so, um, so uh, when you actually got around to do the imaging, um, how good was it? I mean, were you, what model did you use to show that it worked? Um, we used uh, two different disease models. Right. Uh, for the first compound that we were still studying, even though it didn't cross the blood-brain barrier because we were interested in its other properties, we used a systemic model of inflammation and we looked into the liver. Later on, we used the EAE model of multiple sclerosis, which in rats, which is the model we used in, it inflames a specific section of the spinal cord. Right. Um, which is where a lot of the multiple sclerosis problems actually are. Yes, yes. Um, and so we were able to see a very good change in uptake between healthy rats and rats that were given the disease model in the spinal cord. Right. Um, so uh, there was, a, I saw the images, they were quite impressive in terms of the uptake. Is this model translatable to inflammation other than multiple sclerosis? Um, well, that, that's a matter of some debate in the literature. Right. Um, so unfortunately for multiple sclerosis, there's not a lot of very good animal models. Right. Only higher order primates get multiple sclerosis. Right. Um, so the main models that are used are the EAE, which is by far the most predominant model. And there are a couple other models that we're actually starting to look into to see if our tracer performs equally well or, or better in those models as well. Right. But what about other disease processes? I mean, there's the, people say that inflammation is important in, in all kinds of uh, right. disease processes um, in the brain. For example, they, they say it's, there's a component of it in, in, um, in neurodegeneration in general. I mean, do you think that this, this, this could be applicable to things other than MS in that respect? Um, well, definitely things other than MS. I'm not so sure about the general neurodegeneration like Alzheimer's right. or things like that. It could be. We haven't looked into that. Um, one of the things that we do think would be very applicable for would be traumatic brain injury. Right. Um, so CTE and so on. Exactly. Right. So you're looking at uh, an insult that causes inflammation, then later on that, that causes accumulation of tau and then right. neurogeneration in that respect. Right. What other sort of disease process do you think it might be useful for? Um, well, unfortunately, we haven't really looked at a lot of the other diseases. We've been pretty much focused on multiple sclerosis. Right. Well, multiple sclerosis but, is a big one because it's a common disease, right? But, relatively common. I mean, and uh, and it's a disease where where the therapies really need to be targeted at the right times, exactly. as well as not the right like as well as the right locations, the right time of disease uh, process. Right, that and that's one of the real applications we had for our our tracer is that. It's going to be useful for diagnosis, um, but not necessarily as much. What it's going to be really useful for is monitoring response to treatment right. for both multiple sclerosis and anything else that has this receptor upregulated, right. which because of the way the cell signaling works should, should be any major inflammatory process in the central nervous system. Right. But also to make sure that diseases, you're targeting the disease at the right time. So, so um, multiple sclerosis uh, uh, often has a... Uh, periods of quiescence and periods right. of activity. So you could you could see those sorts of activities in order to target your therapy. Right. Well, one of the interesting things about the receptor is that it's not only upregulated in the active stage, right. but also in the chronically inactive stage. Right. So even though something might not be, it's, the disease uh, symptoms might not be severe at that point, you could still use this as ah. a measure of the response to therapy, gotcha. even if it's the symptoms are in remission. Right. But also in terms of diagnosis, I mean, the things we see on a on an MR, are really, uh, which is a main method of diagnosis, right? <laughs> right. I think are really signs of, of the degeneration, which is down the track. 
Right. And you're going to see this earlier in the... Than no, this, this receptor is upregulated very early in the inflammatory cycle. Right. So that's quite exciting to be able to pick it up early because that's going to point to new forms of therapy that may be able to suppress it before the disease actually right. progresses. Right. Excellent news. Oh, really good stuff. How can people find out more about this? Um, well, by reading our papers, um, we actually just published this in uh, Journal of Medicinal Chemistry. Right. Um, and then hopefully we're going to be publishing more and looking into other diseases as right. well. Excellent. All right. Thank you very much for taking right. your time for the podcast. Really well, appreciate thank it. You. Thank you. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Nuclear Medicine and Molecular Medicine podcast. Um, I'm hoping I can catch up with you. I'm going to be at the SNM meeting in 2017 at Denver, Colorado, and I'm also going to be at the International Alzheimer's meeting in London. Um, so if, uh, if you want to catch up with me, please drop me a line and email me at rob at newcast.com. Um, and if you've got a story to tell, um, got something you'd like to put on the podcast, then just email me. We can tee up a time. Thanks. Hear from you soon.